Welcome to the PZNP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm your host, Becky Carson, pediatric nurse practitioner and clinical assistant professor at Catholic University of America. I am so excited to introduce season seven's mini-series on cognitive bias in pediatric healthcare. This mini-series is based on a lecture I gave at NAPNAP's 2019 National Conference entitled, Spotting the Zebras, Cognitive Bias and Case Analysis on Primary Care Presentations with Severe Diagnoses. We'll start out the mini-series by exploring what cognitive bias is and how it impacts healthcare in America. Then we'll spend the remaining episodes going through case studies that presented with seemingly benign primary care chief complaints that ended up being very concerning acute care diagnoses and the cognitive bias that caused the original providers to mistake the zebras for horses. I use the metaphor spotting the zebra in a pack of horses to represent our challenge as pediatric providers in identifying the one sick child who's masquerading in the more plentiful group of healthy children. The goal in discussing cognitive bias and the shortcomings of misdiagnoses is not to shame, belittle, or embarrass the original provider. It's to open your eyes to the acute care differential and help you realize that you need to consider where risk lies in a patient's presentation. Because at the end of the day, that's where your medical liability is. Therefore, the burden lies on you to demonstrate that even if you diagnosed something else, you were thorough and complete in your evaluation and you considered the acute care differential. That way, you can confidently say that in understanding that disease exists on a continuum, at this moment in time, that was not a relevant diagnosis. When we fail to do that and convince ourselves that we were right without considering the entire picture, cognitive bias threatens the safety of our patients. And that can be costly or even lethal. What is cognitive bias, you ask? Cognitive bias is a systematic error in thinking that affects the decisions and judgments that people make in a given situation. Think of it like the intersection of objective facts and the things that confirm your beliefs. The world around us is really complicated, so our brains try shortcuts in order to preserve energy for more complex thought. We all do it because it makes intuitive sense, it's worked for us in one way or another throughout our lives, and we desperately need those shortcuts. If we didn't use these mental shortcuts, then every single little thing in our lives would be a painstaking decision filled with lots of conflicting emotions but cognitive bias in healthcare can lead to medical errors with high stakes consequences. Let's talk a little bit about error as it relates to cognitive bias. I'm sure you all remember the Institute of Medicine's 1999 report entitled To Err is Human. This landmark report brought medical errors and patient safety to the forefront of the healthcare conversation. Shortly thereafter, the IOM also wrote Crossing the Quality Chasm, which sought to close the gap in high-quality healthcare as it was delivered to patients across the country. Both of these documents acknowledged that diagnostic error was a problem, but they failed to make any kind of recommendation on how to address it. Then in 2015, the IOM authored Improving Diagnosis in Healthcare, which sought to elevate the existing knowledge on diagnostic error and propose some solutions. Finally, there was acknowledgement that diagnostic error causes problems in medical decision-making. But there are some inherent problems with studying it. First, remember how I said hindsight is 2020? We're really only able to study diagnostic error retrospectively, 
because of the nature of how differential diagnosis works. No one picks the diagnosis that they think is wrong. And people often remember the past incorrectly when new information is revealed later, which is a kind of cognitive bias called hindsight bias. Therefore, we're going to have inadequate data to truly represent the problem. Because our own cognitive biases caused us to believe that we were right in the first place, many times we'll only know that a medical error has occurred when there's a poor outcome, most often a severe one, and that likely underrepresents the breadth of the problem. For every type of cognitive bias, there are reasons that it's difficult to study, because it's just that, biased. The good thing about this report was that there were solutions to the problem that we can work towards. For one, we need to partner with patients and their families so that they can understand how a differential diagnosis works, the level of our uncertainty in the working diagnosis, and how confident you are with your decisions, and the expected outcome for patients so that they recognize when a reevaluation needs to occur. This requires effective communication using language that the patient and family can understand. The diagnostic process is complex, and it must also involve the multidisciplinary team with interprofessional collaboration at every step. This could be with nurses, social workers, physicians, advanced practice providers, subspecialty consultants, pharmacists, dietitians, the list goes on. And I think the key thing that the committee points out in their diagram of the diagnostic process is that this cycle of information gathering, interpretation, and adaptation of the working diagnosis exists on a time continuum, whereby, as I always say, you're seeing a patient in a snapshot in time, but disease exists on a continuum. And in the ever-evolving patient presentation, reevaluation actually has a really important role. And this jogs my memory of my undergraduate education in the nursing process. Assess, diagnose, plan, implement, evaluate, and start over again with assess. The essential piece of both the nursing process and the IOM's diagnostic process is the cyclic ability to return to information gathering with an open mind to begin again if needed. To do your job well, you must remain open-minded and go through the process obediently. So how big is this problem? The IOM's Committee on Diagnostic Error in Healthcare did a retrospective analysis on adult healthcare and found that 17% of hospital adverse events and 10% of patient deaths involved diagnostic error in some way. In pediatrics, we see an increase in diagnostic error in more rare or complex disease. For instance, one study found that 28% of new oncologic diagnoses experienced diagnostic error of some kind, whether it be an improper workup, failure to recognize the signs and symptoms of cancer, or misinterpretation of results. Let's look at it from a financial perspective. A comparative benchmarking study looked at 20,000 malpractice claims in Massachusetts. Of those, 4,000 had diagnostic errors. And of those, 73% were listed as having cognitive shortcomings, but only 3% were listed as having a knowledge deficit. So what does that mean? It means that we have the book smarts to identify what's wrong with the patient. And we all know about the disease process that's affecting the patient, but we take those mental shortcuts and fail to consider the diagnosis as it presented. 
those 4,000 cases accounted for $631 million in malpractice payments and settlements. That's a lot of money. But remember that this study was only Massachusetts and only in a single year and only the cases that were reported. So we're actually talking about billions of dollars in malpractice annually that we can attribute to cognitive bias. How does our decision-making lead to such egregious shortcomings in diagnostic reasoning? Well, it helps to understand how our brains work to make these decisions. One theory is that we have two systems of thought, aptly named System 1 and System 2. System 1 is rules of thumb, mental shortcuts, and obvious impressions, known as heuristics. Heuristics are kind of like instincts that help us make instant decisions. System two is a mode of thought that gets employed when you're confronted with a unique problem, a difficult decision, or contradictory evidence. Let's give an example. Imagine you're driving down the road on a beautiful day. You stop at a red light and a convertible rolls up to you with a beautiful blonde who has long wavy hair behind the wheel. You think nothing of it. And then you double take because that's in fact a golden retriever that you saw. What? A dog driving a car? Oh wait, that dog is sitting in its owner's lap. Well, that's not very safe, but it's system one and system two at work. Your initial impression of that cute blonde was system one, a rapid, intuitive, pattern-based impression. Then the cartoonish double take was system two realizing the need to evaluate additional information like the furry snout staring over the steering wheel. System two noted the absurdity of your initial impression and further analyzed the situation to achieve logical reasoning to make a more informed decision. To take it one step further, the dual process theory tells us that we use these two systems of thought in sequence, first system one, then system two. Heuristics are used to immediately solve the problem then analytic reasoning may or may not change your initial impression. There's another theory that involves our higher reasoning as humans, and that's called metacognition. This is the idea that we use system one, then conduct deliberate self-reflection, then use system two. In metacognition, we prompt ourselves to reflect when there's more data to evaluate. Let's try an example. Here are some fun facts I learned on the National Geographic Kids website. Great white sharks can be found throughout the world's oceans, mostly in cool waters close to the coast. These super swimmers are the largest predatory fish on our planet. On average, they grow to about 4.6 meters long, but some great whites have been measured at six meters. That's half the length of a bus. This marine beast's mouth is equipped with a set of 300 sharp triangular teeth arranged in up to seven rows. Wow, that is super interesting. Okay, now what if I asked you to name which animal causes the most human deaths in summer? Go ahead, shout out your answer. Was it sharks? You're really tempted to say sharks because I just gave you a lot of information about sharks and it's fresh on your mind. That's availability bias. But then you pause because you know it's a trick since this is a podcast all about cognitive bias. And you reflect a little bit more deeply about what animal can impact our health and wellness as humans. And that's it. Your system two processing thought about disease carrying vectors like mosquitoes, 
who carry malaria in addition to other infectious diseases. Even though it was a simple question, it's important to recognize that it took effort for you to pause and think more deeply about the answer. If you simply rely on heuristics all the time, it can lead to systematic errors and oversight. So what should we do about it? Well, providers need to think about how they think. And that brings us to adaptive expertise. Remember Pat Benner's novice to expert scale? There are different levels of clinical expertise that a provider can exhibit as they balance efficiency and innovation in clinical practice and problem solving. A routine expert is someone who stays in their nice little box of knowledge, sticks to what they know, and never steps outside the bounds of what's right under their nose. This would be like using your heuristics only in the dual process theory. You never did the double take and just thought that that cute blonde had really nice hair. But you can become an adaptive expert if you combine your expert practice with intentional reflection. In this way, you can come up with novel solutions to add to your understanding. You can do this by recognizing when a patient doesn't fit the typical presentation of a differential diagnosis. Take it back to the patho. Do some research to dig a bit further or consult a colleague or specialist. This adaptive skill is like a muscle. It gets stronger and more effective when used frequently. When you do this and are open to different pathways of thought, you increase your ability to manage medical complexity and take on more challenging cases. But if you don't, the skill will atrophy in the absence of logic and reasoning, and this opens up the possibility of diagnostic error. It's time for a little check-in on how you're feeling about all this information. Which way do you think? Are you constantly looking deeper into a patient's presentation, making sure that you aren't missing anything? Or do you make decisions quickly, often skipping over lots of information because you're being rushed by 10-minute sick visits and a waiting room full of impatient parents? Do you assume the family history is normal? Do you forget to clarify subtle details surrounding the patient's history or review of systems that would otherwise change the differential diagnosis or risk factors? Do you assume their immunizations are up to date? Do you feel like your gut instincts are always on point? Are your clinic notes incredibly brief? Are they brief not because you're an expert at synthesizing the patient presentation, but because they're lacking lots of pertinent negatives that demonstrate that you considered a well-developed differential diagnosis? Do you know what you don't know? What's your 72-hour return rate like? Do you have patients who return to you or another colleague and leave with a different diagnosis? Sure, some of it can be disease progression, but did you actually miss something? I'm going to give you some time to think about how your thinking impacts your practice and the openings left for diagnostic error in your work. Next time, we'll talk about the clinical context of hearing information and features that impact your cognitive processes. Later this season, we'll discuss cases and the ways that you can change your behavior to make better, safer decisions. I hope that you'll like, comment, and subscribe to the PEDSNP, where we focus on the practical application of evidence-based practice. There is no financial support or conflict of interest in this or any episode of the PZNP. You can see show notes and references at the newly updated PZNP website. Visit www.thepzenp.com for all the details. Tweet me at the PZNP or find me on Instagram at the PZNP podcast. 
Remember that this isn't just a podcast. You've got to get it right for the kids. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.